Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This morning. And thank you for your prayers. Um, it's a hard call whether you go to the ER or you go do what God's called you to do. And God's called me to preach. So, so we come this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to um, worship Jesus for the magnitude, thanks Brent, of his sacrificial death on the cross. And I want to begin just with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've got a lot of quotes this morning because I think a lot of the people that I'm quoting say things better than I do, and so I think it's, it's appropriate that we listen to what other, other people have to say. So here's what Charles Spurgeon said. If there should ever come a wretched day when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? No, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to stop speaking of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to talk about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Am I very loud? I sound loud. Am I loud out there or am I okay? Am I okay? Okay, maybe it's just loud up here. So we're going to talk about the blood of Christ this morning. Last week we looked at his sacrificial life. Today we're going to look, I mean his sinless life. Today we're going to look at his sacrificial death. And what I want to begin with is a very disturbing question. A disturbing question that's posed for us in the Psalms. And when you think about the disturbing nature of this question, it really should shatter us. Here's the question in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Have you thought about that question? If God were to keep a record of our sins, if God were to count our sins against us, who would be able to stand in his presence? Who would have an answer? Who would survive? Because God has to punish sin. Can God be God and not punish sin? Doesn't God have the sovereign right to punish us for our sins, to count our sins against us? Does not God have right as a holy God to do that? Absolutely. But I come to you this morning and say, praise the Lord, he's chosen not to do that. God has chosen not to count our sins against us because none of us could stand if he did. Romans chapter 4, 7 through 8 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the greatest news that any of us could hear, that God does not count our sins against us. The almighty living God of the universe does not count our sins against us. C.J. Mahaney has said this, unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd 
full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, and you're standing there crying out, crucify Him, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your own sin or the necessity of the cross. And it drives us to sing the words to the hymn that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Think about the implications of that song. In my place, condemned he stood. I should have been the one to die on that cross. I should have been the one bearing the shame. I should have been the one that had the scoffing of the, of the people come upon me because of my sin. But Christ died, and it says, full atonement, can it be? What were some of the last words that Jesus cried out on the cross? It is finished. Last week, we explored the sinless life of Christ. Today, we're going to look at a sacrificial death, and we're going to turn to this passage of Scripture that we've been looking at, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 17, going through verse 21, and really focusing on verse 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On this Palm Sunday, as we think about the cross of Christ this week and we wait in anticipation for Easter Sunday next Sunday, I want us to explore three truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. Three things that we're going to see that, that really help us understand. And, and it's really hard for me, guys. I've got to stand up. I can't sit for that much longer. Um, I'm going to try it. It's, it's driving me crazy to sit down. We'll see how long it works. Um, We need to understand what it means for Christ to bear our sin. So here's the first, here's the first issue. Our sin was credited to Christ as our wrath-bearing substitute. Our sin was credited to Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. I, I gave emphasis to it when I read it. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not not counting their trespasses against them. God was not counting our sins against us. Why was he not counting it against us? Because he was counting it to someone else. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God does count our sins. God does take, take an account of our sins. God does punish our sins. That's the beauty of the gospel, but he doesn't punish it in us. He punishes it in Christ. 
in our place. So what does it mean that Jesus Christ became sin? That's, that's a profound statement there in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin. What does it mean that Jesus became sin? What does that mean? Well, first of all, what does it not mean? It does not mean that Jesus became a sinner. It can't mean that Jesus became a sinner. We saw that last week, that he was 100% perfect and thought, word, indeed, for 33 years of his life, he was sinless. He was perfect, 100% perfect. So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus became sin? Here's what it basically means. While he was hanging on that cross, all of our sin was being credited to him. All of our sin was being imputed to him. All of our sin was being accounted to him. So that in that moment that he's hanging on the cross, God looks down upon Jesus and God can treat Jesus as the most vile of sinners, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. Listen to what Martin Luther said about it. Martin Luther said, No doubt the prophets all foresaw that Christ would become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or ever could be in the world. Being made a sacrifice for our sins, he is not now as an innocent person without sins, but a sinner who carries the sins of Paul, who was a blasphemer, Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. It was not that Jesus himself committed these sins, but he received the sins that we had committed. They were laid on his own body that he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. In short, our sin had to become Christ's own sin or else we will perish forever. Do you see that? Our sin had to become Christ's sin or else we would die. Galatians 3.13 is another profound passage of Scripture that gives evidence of what happened to Jesus when he became sin on our behalf. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. Now, what does it mean that Jesus became a curse for us? What does it mean to be cursed? What does it literally mean to be cursed? If you trace this idea of being cursed through both the Old Testament especially and in the New Testament, there's an opposite to being cursed. What's the opposite of being cursed? Being blessed. Being blessed. Now, we looked at the blessings when we looked at the Beatitudes, right, a few months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the man who walks in the ways of the Lord. Blessed, there's this whole idea of wanting to have the blessing of God in our lives. And the greatest blessing that we see in the Old Testament is from Numbers chapter 6. It's the ironic blessing. Oftentimes, sometimes pastors or, or preachers may, may pray this blessing over, over a congregation as a benediction. But listen to what, to what the Lord told Moses to say to Aaron. In number 6, 22 through 26, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron 
and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And the Lord give you peace. I mean, don't we as Christians long to hear those words? We want the face of Christ to shine upon us. We want the peace of Christ to come upon us. We want the blessing of God. We want the relationship with God. We want all of these blessings to come upon us. The greatest thing we as Christians can have is to see Jesus Christ face to face, right? Now, we can't see him face to face right now. We can see him in the scriptures, but one day we're going to see Jesus face to face and it's going to light up our eyes and we're going to be gloriously in heaven with him. Remember Moses. Moses wanted to see the face of God, did he not? I mean, Moses saw the plagues, the ten plagues. Moses parted the Red Sea. Moses saw the manna coming from heaven to feed them. Moses saw the water come out of the rock, but that was not enough for Moses. What did Moses want to see? God, I want to see you in your full glory, and I want your face to come shining upon me in all of your blessing. And God said, if I had to do that to you, Moses, you won't live. Because nobody can handle that. Nobody can handle all of my glory coming up on their face. So what I'll do, Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And you can see my my backside glory pass by you. And so we know that Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and he saw the the backside glory of God. And, And that was so glorious for Moses just to see a glimpse of God's glory, God's face shining upon him. And then when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining. And so the greatest hope that we have as Christians is what? To have the glorious face of Christ shining upon us in blessing it's called a benediction the blessing of god the blessing now what's the opposite of a blessing a curse what did jesus cry out when he was on that cross matthew 27 45 through 46 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sekbachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken? What does it mean for Jesus to be abandoned there on the cross? What was the greatest experience that Jesus ever had in his life? To hear the words of his father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But on that cross when Jesus was dying for our sins, what did he hear? Did he hear the blessing of God? Did he hear that blessing? No, he heard the cursing of God. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord abandon you. May the Lord turn his face from you. May the Lord pour out his wrath upon you. May the Lord not give you peace, but may the Lord give you hostility. That's what Jesus heard on that cross. God's face turned away from him. And in that moment, it was not a benediction. It was a malediction. It was a curse. It was the wrath of God coming. It was the darkest moment of Jesus' life to experience not only the physical torture of crucifixion, but to feel the weight of the wrath of God come swirling down upon him in that single moment. He who never knew sin experienced all of our sin in the vilest of moments, in the darkest of moments, and cried out for the first time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never called God God. He called him Father because he had an intimate relationship, and at that moment he became a curse and heard the wrath of God upon him. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said. At the moment when Christ took on himself the sins of the world, 
his figure on the cross was the most grotesque, most obscene mass of concentrated sin. in the history of the world. But notice what our text says. How does verse 21 start? For our sake. For our sake. It's a little preposition in the Greek language, huper. It means in our place. It means in our stead. It means as a substitute for us. It means for our sake. It means in that moment, Jesus Christ died in our place as a wrath-bearing substitute for our sins. John Calvin said this, when we behold the disfigurement of the Son of God, when we find ourselves appalled by His marred appearance, We need to reckon afresh that it's upon ourselves that we gaze, for he stood in our place. We call this propitiation. It's a biblical word. Maybe you've never heard the word before. Propitiation. It basically means that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus in our place. Which makes us ask a question what is God's wrath? Is God a wrathful God? I mean, I heard that God was love, and that is absolutely true. But God is a God of wrath, and he must punish sin. Now, wrath does not mean that God is some out-of-control deity like Zeus that's throwing lightning bolts because he had a bad hair day. Wrath does not mean that God is a little toddler over in the corner crying because you took away his toys and he's throwing a temper tantrum. God's wrath is not jealousy that you and I have as a human emotion. It's not any of those things. When it talks about God's wrath, it's his righteous anger against sin. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of his holiness. God has to punish sin. God has to respond in anger to the breaking of his law. He can't just brush it under the carpet. He can't just wink at it. God has to punish sin. And here's the amazing thing about that, is that Christ was the one who was punished for us. He took that wrath for us. In here, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin. Some translations say a sin offering. It harkens back to the whole idea of a substitutionary atonement back in the days of Israel when they would have a guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10 The greatest prophecy in the Old Testament to speak about Jesus. Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is talking about Jesus. When Jesus makes an offering for guilt, when Jesus becomes sin, when Jesus offers himself as guilty in our place, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it. On the cross, God did not spare his son any of the punishment. God did not say, because he's my son, I'll modify the punishment. I'll hold back a little while. I, I can't do that to my own son. 
I can't regard him as a sinner. I cannot smite him. I cannot strike him. He's my son. God did not say that. He did everything he said he would do. He poured out all of his divine wrath upon sin, upon his own dearly beloved son. And here's the issue that's mind-boggling. Jesus did it willingly for us. Alistair Begg, and I'm not going to give Alistair Begg's accent. If you listen to Alistair Begg, he's got the Scottish accent, and you can picture Alistair Begg saying this. I'll quote him, but I won't try to give a Scottish accent. I'll probably butcher it. But here's what Alistair Begg says. Jesus goes to the garbage heap for all my garbage. He goes to the cross for all my rebellion, for all my filthy thoughts, all my self-preoccupation, all my pride, all my self-aggrandizement. There is no story in all of human history like this. There's no notion in all religions of the world that comes close to touching this. This is imponderable, mysterious, majestic, and glorious. This is all about God and the wonder of His grace. It is mind-blowing. Why in the world would Jesus do this? If it hasn't shocked you, it should. The fact that Christ bore God's wrath in your place should drive us to our knees in humility and cry out in thanksgiving to a great and mighty Savior who did this for us. He took our sins. Philip Graham Ryken has said this, It was as if God had taken a giant bucket and scooped up all the sins of His people All the jealousy, the anger, the lying, the rebellion, the stealing, the incest, the hypocrisy, all the envy, all the swearing, and he dumped them out all on Jesus. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Truth number one, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were credited to Christ as our wrath-bearing substitute. But here's truth number two, just as glorious. And we looked at part of this last week. Because of his sinless life and his sacrificial death, we actually become the righteousness of God. Have you thought about that? We actually become the righteousness of God. That's what the text says here. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now again, we don't produce this righteousness. We can't earn this righteousness. We don't manufacture this. Where does this righteousness come from? Well, we looked at it last week. 33 years of perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed by Jesus Christ and those hours of grueling death on the cross bearing God's wrath. His life and his death come together and because of our faith in him, we can be the righteousness of Christ. Now look at verse 19 again. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to us, not counting their trespasses against them. God wasn't counting our trespasses against us. He was reconciling us to the Father. This is reconciliation. It's this whole idea that our record's been canceled and Christ's record's been given to us and we've been reconciled to the Father. I love how Martin Luther says this. He says, learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness, I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet on me what was yours. Now listen to this, I love this. You became what you were not, so that I might become what I was not. You became what you were not, Jesus. What were you not? You were not a sinner. But you took upon sin 
so that I might become what I was not. What was I not? I was not the righteousness of Christ. What's happened in this reconciliation? Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, Paul repeats this term reconciliation a lot in this passage of Scripture. Be reconciled to God. The ministry of reconciliation, he's reconciling the world. What is reconciliation? Well, reconciliation assumes that before we were at odds, right? Well, it's a whole lot worse than just being at odds. What the Bible says, to be honest with you, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, the Bible says you're at war with God. You're God's enemy. You're an enemy of God, and you've offended this holy God, and you need to be reconciled to this God. You desperately need to be reconciled to this God. Listen to what Romans 5, 8 through 11 says. Some of my favorite passages of Scripture right here. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, God didn't wait for us to clean our act up, did he? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's that wrath terminology again. For if while we were enemies, yes, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ to whom we've now received reconciliation. What does reconciliation do? It takes away God's wrath. It takes away us being at war and it brings us back into a right relationship with God. We're at peace with God. Our sins have been forgiven. Why? Because Christ died in our place and he gave us the righteousness of Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Hostile, alienated, under God's wrath, an enemy of God. That describes every single person in this room this morning who has not been reconciled to God. You're under his wrath, and the beauty of it is verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God. Which leads me to my third truth this morning. What's the first truth? Christ took all of our sins as the wrath-bearing substitute. Number two, because of that, because of his perfect life and because of his sacrificial death, we can become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. Here's number three, and it's more of a plea. It's an urging. Be reconciled to God through Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you, we challenge you, we urge you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. What's Paul saying there? Stop. Stop being a rebel. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your pitiful righteousness. Stop going your own way. Stop incurring more and more wrath. Stop sinning. Stop being an enemy. Stop it and repent and be reconciled to God. Turn to the eyes of the Savior like we sang earlier. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look to the one who died. Look to the one who bore God's wrath. Look to him and be reconciled. Trust in this Christ. Believe in this Christ. Be reconciled. Listen to what Spurgeon said, and only the way Spurgeon say, could say it. Trembling sinner, look to Jesus and you'll be saved. 
Don't say, my sins are many. His atonement is wondrous. Do you cry out, my heart is hard? Jesus can soften it. Do you exclaim, I'm unworthy? Jesus loves the unworthy. Do you feel, I'm so vile? It's the vile Jesus came to save. Turn your eyes on the cross. See Jesus only. He suffers. He bleeds. He dies. There's a hymn that's been around for about 10 years by Stuart Townend. We've sung it a few times. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But I know this with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Have you ever stopped? And I think about the last verse of that song. Have you ever stopped and just wondered, why did Jesus save you? I think about that all the time. Why did God save me? I know the depth of sin in my own heart. I know what I'm capable of doing. If you were to pull away the onions and the layers in this heart, you would see a man that you would be afraid of if not for the grace of God. And every single one of us here, if not for the grace of God, we would be lost. Why does God save us? Is it because we're so good? Or is it because he's so good? I don't have an answer for that. All I know is that in God's sovereign grace, he looked down upon this miserable sinner and opened my eyes to see Jesus. And he turned my eyes to see Jesus. And he granted me the gift of faith. And I looked to Jesus and I saw those wounds and I said, I want you, Jesus. And I want that to be true for every single person here this morning. Listen to some wonderful words about sin. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Where, when do the east and west meet? They don't. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. If you, O oh God, kept a record of sin, who could stand? And the answer is none of us could stand. But because of Christ dying in our place, our sins were credited to him. We can be reconciled to the Father. We can have the righteousness of God. And we can have joy everlasting. Now, Holy Week starts this week. It's a week to meditate upon the cross. This week, I want us to meditate upon the darkness and the torture and the scandal and the beauty and the wonder and the grace 
of the cross. This may be a somber week, but there's a purpose behind it. Wednesday, we're going to gather together as a church and celebrate the Lord's Supper in a very unique way through a Passover Seder. We're going to see how Christ was pictured in the Old Testament Exodus, and we're going to gather and we're going to talk about the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And then on Good Friday, the day that Christ was sacrificed, I'm calling us to fast and take a day of just thinking about what our Savior went through, and then we're going to go on the faith journey at 1 o'clock and and praise the Lord and think about in anticipation for Easter. And then guess what comes on Sunday? No more somber. No more darkness. No more introspection. Joy. Before the resurrection comes the cross. So as we meditate upon the cross this week, when we come next week on Easter Sunday, we come with joy because there's an empty tomb. We come with expectation. We come with excitement, ready to worship our risen Savior with joy. So this morning, I want to close with a video. And the video, if you can get that ready, is called Sunday's Coming. If we can dim the lights so that we could see that. I'll stay up here. When we think about the sufferings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross for us, we want to respond with brokenness. We want to respond with humility. We want to respond with joy. We want to respond with repentance. We want to respond with awe. and wonder and amazement that you would die in the place of sinners like us. That you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. We can't comprehend it we can't, can't understand it. But we can bow before you, King Jesus, and love you and serve you and proclaim you. And this week, Lord, help us to prepare our hearts to meditate upon the cross, knowing that Sunday's coming. knowing that you put an end to sin and death. You conquered the grave. And let us come. Let us be somber this week as we think about the cross, but let us come next week with joy because there's an empty tomb. And Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody in this room this morning, Lord Jesus, who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never had their sins forgiven. They've never repented. They've never cried out for forgiveness. They've never turned and trusted in you. They've never been reconciled to you. Would today be their day of salvation?
Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of the sinless Savior and the wrath-bearing Christ dying where we should have stood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We say it to you, Lord, this morning. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. I'm going to ask you just to spend a few moments in silent prayer this morning. Just spend time in worship. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus this morning. Love you. You are holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is filled with your glory. Please never let our hearts move from the glory of the cross and prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday next week. For the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.